Jeremiah's world was coming apart at the seams. Maybe yours is too. The armies of Nebuchadnezzar had reduced the nation of Judah to the size of its capital city, Jerusalem. And now the armies surrounded the walls of the city. <clears throat> this was the last piece of real estate, and it was about to fall to Nebuchadnezzar as well. Famine and disease were devouring the besieged residents of the city. Jeremiah the prophet was among them. There was no future for them except death or slavery. In the midst of this scene, something bizarre happened. Jeremiah's nephew sought him out and asked him to buy a field on behalf of his father. A field that was in Anathoth, a village just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, but which had already been seized by the invading armies of Nebuchadnezzar. Was this a joke? Was he kidding? Who would want a field that had already been taken by the invading armies? And yet God, God had informed Jeremiah in advance that his nephew was coming and what he would ask. And God told Jeremiah to buy the field to redeem it, in order to keep it in the family for the future. Now, what is this curious incident about, anyway? Was it a good investment? Was this insider trading? I hardly think so. The transaction would have no value immediately. But there was a symbolic value beyond the economic. I invite you to open your Bible to the book of Jeremiah, the 32nd chapter. And let your eyes fall down through the prayer of Jeremiah that we've been studying to verse 25, which is really the end of the prayer. Where Jeremiah goes on to say, And thou hast said to me, O Lord God, buy for yourself the field with money and call in witnesses, although the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Jeremiah's prayer stops at that point, and the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, <clears throat> Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? You see, this transaction makes a statement about the faithfulness of God. All seemed lost to the citizens of Judah. But behind the dark clouds of their circumstance was a God who was arranging events with wisdom and purpose. And Jeremiah's action was a living parable to the nation that God had a future for it.
And what we learn from Jeremiah's words today is that God is mighty in faithfulness. God is mighty in faithfulness. This same prophet wrote another book of the Old Testament called Lamentations, a collection of five poems mourning the destruction of Jerusalem. Sparkling like a diamond placed on black velvet are these words from Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God's faithfulness flows out of his attribute that we name truth with a capital T. Truth means, as Louis Burkhoff states in his theology, God is perfectly reliable in his revelation and sees things as they really are. That's what God's truth means. He's reliable and he sees things as they truly are. God is never fooled. Paul Enns contributes more when he says, First, it means he is the true God in distinction to all others. There is none like him. And second, he is the truth in that his word and his revelations are reliable. He can be trusted, says Enns. Jeremiah's words assure us that God can be trusted even when our worlds are coming apart. There are two features that I want to talk about this morning in relation to God's faithfulness. They arise out of the text that we've read. The first is this, that God's faithfulness is rooted in his covenant relationships. God's faithfulness is rooted in his covenant relationships. Notice that he says in verse 27, I am the Lord. Now your Bible should have the word Lord all in capitals. In distinction to some other places where the word Lord in the Old Testament has a capital L and then small letters. That's because there are two different words. This word, all in capitals, is the Hebrew word YHWH, transliterated into the English. It is interesting that we have lost the pronunciation of this word down through the centuries. No one knows for sure how to pronounce it. But most likely it is pronounced something like Yahweh. And so he says, I am Yahweh. I am that I am is the meaning of this name. The dynamic, eternally existent one is Yahweh. But there's more than that. Aaron Potter says, it is like an unfinished statement. That is, this name, Yahweh, is like an unfinished statement. 
to which we may provide the ending with our need of him. The name Yahweh, when God says, I am the Lord, he is saying, I am all that you will ever need. The name Yahweh was God's self-revelation. As he made his initial covenant in the Bible, which is sometimes called the Edenic covenant because it was focused on the Garden of Eden. After man's fall, it was the Lord God who made the provision of the animal skins to cover their nakedness, shedding the blood of those animals as an atonement to cover the transgressions of Adam and Eve. Who was it again? It was the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh is God, the gracious Redeemer, who provides what man needs and makes covenant. When God was about to redeem Israel from slavery in Egypt, an historical event, of course, that pictures slavery to sin, when God was about to do that in history, you may remember he chose a deliverer whose name was Moses. And there came a time when God called Moses there on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And God appeared to him in a flaming bush that was not consumed with the flames. God and Moses had a dialogue, and Moses, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, asks for the name of the God who is appearing to him. He says, what shall I tell the people when they say, who sent you? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. That statement, I am that I am, is the way that God expounded on his name, Yahweh. It is the name by which God redeemed Israel and established the covenant at Sinai with his people Israel. <clears throat> My point is this. It is the God who has made covenant with Israel that now in Jeremiah's day is disciplining them <clears throat> and controlling and guiding the circumstances of that discipline because they, the people with whom God the Lord had made covenant, had failed in their covenant. They had not obeyed the Lord and they had worshipped other gods. And God is now bringing discipline upon them because they had broken that covenant. 
God's faithfulness is rooted in his covenant relationships. And God was faithful to Judah even when he was taking Judah, as it were, to the woodshed because of the nation's sins. God's faithfulness is rooted in his covenant relationships. And my friend, the reason that God can be faithful to you is because you, in coming to Jesus Christ and believing on him as your Lord and Savior, have established a covenant relationship with him. A covenant that is based upon Christ's own blood shed on the cross. And he will be faithful to you because of that covenant. God's faithfulness is rooted in his covenant relationships. And he is the Lord who is all that you and I need in life. And he will be faithful to us. Now the second feature that I want to bring out of the text about God's faithfulness is that God's faithfulness rests upon his sovereignty. It's rooted in his covenant relationships, but it rests upon his sovereignty. He says, I am Yahweh, the God of all flesh. That is, the God of all humanity. God is pointing to the fact that there is no other God. He is the God of the Jews, but he is the God of all flesh. Whether they recognize him, whether they know of him or not, he is, in fact, the God of all flesh. He is sovereign over all peoples. He's ultimately on the throne above all. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And his faithfulness rests upon his sovereignty. God is truth. That is, God is reliable. And he is able to perfectly be faithful because he has authority and power to do whatever he wants. His is the throne And he is able to do anything he desires that is consistent with his nature. And so God's faithfulness rests upon that. We desire to be faithful also, don't we? But there are times we don't have the ability to be faithful. I think, for example, of the parents who fled from their burning house thinking that all of the children were out and then realized that one child was still in the upstairs bedroom. Immediately they turned and tried to go back into that house as faithful parents wanting to save that child, but the flames and the smoke drove them out and their child perished. They were conscientious. They were devoted, they were faithful parents, but they were limited in what they could do. 
that stands in contrast to God, who is able to do anything that is required to come to the aid of his own. And so he says, is anything too hard, too difficult for me? In asking that rhetorical question, God is but reflecting the words of Jeremiah's own faith back in verse 17 when he said, Nothing is too difficult for thee. Jeremiah has finished his prayer and he is saying, Lord, what does all of this mean? That I am to buy this worthless piece of property. What's it about? The Lord says to Jeremiah, I am the Lord. I am the covenant-keeping Redeemer. And I am the God of all flesh. And Jeremiah, that includes the Babylonians. Is there anything that is too difficult for me? And Jeremiah's words come back to him. To test the faith of that earlier statement. Do you really believe, Jeremiah, that there is nothing too hard for me? Nothing? When we say that there is nothing too hard for God, it does not mean that God is like a genie in a bottle. And that he is going to appear in a puff of smoke, as it were, to fulfill our every wish. When God is faithful, it does not mean that. Nor is he always going to do for us what may seem to us like the best or the most sensible thing or the easiest thing at the moment. It does not mean that. Nor does it mean that he is going to do for us what we can and should do for ourselves. God is not a pampering parent who foolishly spoils his children in the name of love or liberality falsely defined. God's faithfulness to us, his children, is manifested in wise ways. An example of God's faithfulness in a wisdom that cannot really be comprehended is found in the present spiritual disposition of Israel. That's how Paul feels about it. I invite you to turn over to the book of Romans in the ninth chapter. Paul writes in this book regarding his own burden for the Jewish people, his kinsmen according to the flesh, his burden for them due to their failure to believe, to obey Christ. But that failure was not God's fault, of course. He says in Romans chapter 9 and verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, Jeremiah says, yes, Israel has failed. And Israel is set aside, but that does not mean that God has failed. 
He goes on to say in this chapter that Israel rejected their Messiah and set about to establish their own righteousness before God, one of works. Toward the end of this chapter in verse 30, notice his words. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. So Paul explains what happened to Israel. Israel stumbled over Christ. And in rejecting him, set about a course to establish their own righteousness before God by their works. And in doing that, they failed of righteousness. And so God set them aside as a nation. They stumbled. God set them aside as a nation. While at the same time calling a remnant of Jews to faith. To be joined together with Gentiles, believing Gentiles, in the church. See that in chapter 11. Look at verse 2. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That's Israel. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed thy prophets. They have torn down thine altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. Remember Elijah saying that? In the same way then, Oh, excuse me, verse 4. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, Paul says, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And so God set aside his people of the Old Covenant as a nation because they rejected the Messiah. And yet God is calling out from them a remnant to be a part of the church, which is largely Gentile in nature. And one day, he says at the end of this chapter, when the church is complete, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, he says, all Israel will be saved. Now, what is Paul's point here? His point is that God, though he set Israel aside, is not finished with national Israel. Now, when the church has been completed, when everyone that God has chosen to be a part of the church has believed and come to faith and been incorporated in the body, when the fullness of the Gentiles has finally arrived, whenever that is, God is going to return to Israel. 
as a nation. And he is going to save the nation of Israel. Verse 29 says, back up to verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Not that the church considers the Jews enemies, that's not the point, but they consider themselves enemies of the gospel. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Then he warns, he says, for just as you once were disobedient to God, you Gentiles, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. You see, he is pleading to show mercy to the Jews and giving them the gospel. He says, for God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. And after going through three chapters of explanation about how God had done this and God had done that, and here's why, and God's choice is irrevocable, and God is faithful to his promises, God's word has not failed, he says, here's what's happened. And then the apostle just exults in praise of God's wisdom. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The Lord, who is the God of all flesh, who has arranged these things that have happened and will one day fully carry them out. He says, oh, the wisdom of God. <clears throat> Just as God was faithful to the nation in Jeremiah's day, although allowing them to go into captivity in Babylon, so he is faithful to Israel now, despite their unbelief. And someday he is going to bring Israel to himself and fulfill all of the promises that he made to them. You see, God, God has a plan. And God is always working his plan. Always. His faithfulness toward his people is always consistent with his purposes. And he has the power that will ultimately bring all of his purposes to pass. Every one of them. I want to close with a question and a consolation. I'm going to start with the consolation. The consolation is this, that God's faithfulness reassures us in our crises, as it did Jeremiah, that he is working his greater plan in our lives today, and he will also achieve it. You and I cannot get beyond the faithfulness of God. 
That does not mean that God is going to heal your every disease, that he's going to solve your every financial predicament. It does not mean that God will necessarily restore your broken relationship and heal your broken heart. It does not mean that God will nullify the consequences of your disobedience even when you confess your sins. God's faithfulness will not necessarily make life easy for you or comfortable. But what I'm talking about this morning lays a foundation for your life. So that whatever you're passing through, you can be assured that God is working his plan faithfully. He will work all things together for good to them that love God, those who are called according to his purpose. He will. Jeremiah's world was falling apart. And in the midst of all of the crisis, God speaks. And he says, Jeremiah, I am Yahweh. And I am the God of all flesh. Is there anything too difficult for me? preparing my thoughts for this morning, I was reminded of a couple of people who are of my acquaintance because I went to college with them. They married shortly after college, settled in western Michigan, and Bob was very good at his work. He was a man who was sensitive and compassionate, the kind of a husband that most women would dream about. He and Kay were very happy in their marriage with three children. And one evening, ten years ago now, when Bob was about 40 years of age, I would assume, he and Kay left the house like they frequently did together. Uh, He was to speak at the school board function that night. When he left, he did not know that he would never be back. During the speech, he suddenly seized the table and then collapsed. Within seconds, there were people all around him. They began administering CPR. They were able to get his heart started. The ambulance came. They rushed to the hospital. His wife uh, being taken there in a separate vehicle. She waited. The doctors finally came out and said, well, he's alive. But he's in a deep, deep coma. And we're afraid of the brain damage that may have been done. And so they were in a vigil that night. He lived. And days piled upon days and weeks upon weeks and months upon months. Deep coma. 
little change. They went into intensive therapy, bringing things to his bedside that he would recognize, fam familiar music, touching him, talking with him, doing everything they could to stimulate his brain to come back. And, and slowly he began to work his way back. never fully coming out of the coma, but awakening enough to know, to be able to respond to something, to something. But it apparently was so intense for him that he gave up and his condition deteriorated. Three years ago, Kay wrote an article <coughs> for a magazine from our alma mater in which she writes to Bob and tells him about the years that have now transpired. Bob in a nursing home serenely sleeping occasionally awakening only enough to flail his now twisted arms around and to shriek of terrors that no one knows about unable to express anything not knowing anyone is there and Kay writes in the article which is entitled, In Sickness and in Health. Do we really mean it? About the roller coaster ride of emotions that she has been through. At the time of this writing, seven years after Bob, for all practical purposes, left, never to return. She says, and I read in part this lengthy article, <clears throat> after 16 months of intense therapy, she's writing to him now, recounting part of the process. We had to face the fact that there was nothing more we could do. Apart from God's intervention, you would never be the same man I had fallen in love with. Because you were so full of life and had so vibrantly fulfilled your role as head of our home. You left an awful vacuum when your illness took you away. It was as though all that was warm and secure had been sucked out, leaving a cold, dark space. I would never again hear your voice, lovingly speak my name, enjoy your laughter, or feel your your arms around me. You would not share in the joy of raising our children, offering them security and caring for their needs. I would not have the benefit of your wisdom or your sense of humor that lightened the dreariest of days. Never again would I see your eyes light up when I took you by the hand and told you how I loved you. Knowing that I could not give in to my feelings, she writes, 
I claimed Psalm 1830. As for God, his way is perfect. Faith in that promise gave me the courage to face life without you. The faithfulness of God when your world has come apart. And the consolation is that God is there. And he says by his name, I am all that you will ever need. But there's a question that comes with this consolation. Because God's faithfulness not only rests upon his sovereignty, but it's rooted in his covenant relationship. And the question is this, do you have a covenant relationship with God? There's only one covenant that's possible now between us and God. That's called the new covenant in the Bible. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But it is a covenant by which we establish a relationship with God through our faith in the Son that he gave on the cross for our sins. Have you come to that cross and turned your back upon all of your religious works, all of your goodness that you have perceived in the past? And have you bowed your knee acknowledging your sin and received the Christ who died for you and rose again Have you established a covenant relationship with God? If you haven't, you may do that today. The opportunity is open. This is the day of grace when God invites you to come. And if you have, if you have established that relationship with a faithful God, how is your life reflecting his faithfulness? How is that faithfulness being shown to your husband, to your wife, your children, your co-workers, your church, your God? God is mighty in faithfulness, and he calls us to faithfulness as well. Let's pray together. Our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I... I want the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to receive the message that God has for us and to put his finger upon the decision that God wants us to make. Perhaps we need to confess unfaithfulness. God knows what that means. God is truth. There's nothing that we can hide from him. He knows it all. So let's be honest. Let's be truthful ourselves and come to God and open our hearts and show him what is there and confess our sins. And if you've not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, will you receive him into your life this morning as an act of faith?
relying upon him alone for the salvation of your soul. Saying something like, Lord Jesus, come into my life and save me from my sin. I turn from my works. I turn from my past to trust you alone, to rescue me from what I deserve. Be the Lord of my life and help me to be a faithful person. Perhaps as you sit there, you've been struggling with God over the dark circumstances that have overwhelmed you. And like Jeremiah, you feel your world is coming apart and you're saying, God, what does this mean? And God is saying to you this morning, I am Yahweh, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too difficult for me? My friend, he is able to meet you where you are this morning. He is superintending the circumstances of your life. Give it all to him. Rest in his faithfulness. Lord, may we all deal with this text this morning and with be honest within our hearts to what the voice of the Holy Spirit is saying in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen.